Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. Good morning, and welcome back to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes, and for the next 30 minutes, it'll be 30 minutes of motivation, inspiration, some education, and no manipulation, no hidden agendas, no, nothing for you to buy, nothing we're trying to sell, nothing for you to join. Just 30 minutes of accurate information, hopefully that will help you verify and identify God's plan for your life. If you can do that, then you have the freedom, you have the privacy to orient and adjust to that plan. But the flat line heard every Sunday on this radio station going on five years now is a testimony to the grace of God. The objective of the flight line is to teach you the 10 unique problem-solving devices so that you can stop the outside source of pressure before it becomes the inside source of stress. If you haven't learned those 10 unique problem-solving devices, we've been over them and over them and over them. We're not studying them right now at this current time, but uh, they include, number one, the rebound technique. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. This is the problem-solving device for sin. As Christians, we sin. How do we solve that sin? We admit it to God. What does sin do? It quenches and grieves the Holy Spirit. So if we rebound, that's problem-solving device number one, then we can have problem-solving device number two, the filling of the Holy Spirit. What problem does that solve? It solves the problem of your old sin nature wanting to control your life. The Bible says the flesh wars against the spirit, The spirit wars against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. But we are mandated to walk in the spirit, and then we're told if you do that, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the filling of the Holy Spirit is problem-solving device number two, problem-solving device number three. Well, that's the faith rest drill. That's you standing on the promises of God, using the promises of God as a shield to protect you and to uh, keep you from self-destructing, you know, that if there's one thing that Satan's going to do, he's going to take pock shots at you. And using the faith rest drill, if you haven't learned that, it's imperative that you learn it. As a matter of fact, a dear and wonderful pastor that I know wrote a book called The Faith Rest Drill. I can get that book for you free of charge if you'd like to have it. Just write to me, Rick Hughes, P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054. And I'll link you up where you can get that book free of charge. And uh, this is where I learned it as well, by the way. I didn't, I'm not the original person. I learned it just like you have to learn it. A problem solving device number four is grace orientation. Learning about the grace of God, how to exploit the grace of God, live under the grace of God. Problem solving device number five, doctrinal orientation. Problem solving device number six, you having a personal sense of destiny. Problem-solving device number seven and eight, personal love for God, impersonal love for others. Problem-solving device number nine, sharing the happiness of God. Problem-solving device number ten, occupation with Jesus Christ. Those are the ten unique problem-solving devices, and they are just simply an illustration. It's not something you get one at a time. You know, I got that one. Now I got to work on the next one. It's an illustration to explain to you how the Christian life works. That's all that is showing you the mechanics involved in living the Christian life every day. Excuse me. A lot of people don't think about that. They they just 
don't think that there are mechanics, and there are. I mean, you can't drive a car without learning the mechanics. You can't fly an airplane without learning the mechanics. You cannot even bake a cake or make toast or boil an egg until you understand the mechanics. Well, there are mechanics in the Christian life. If you don't understand the mechanics, then you're going to wind up doing the right thing in the wrong way. And the sad part about that is that the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, all of your good works will be burned up and counted as filthy wood, hay, and stubble. That's all it is. Dirt, rocks, sticks, nothing. I can't think of anything more embarrassing than to get to the judgment seat of Christ and to find out that all of my good works are burned up in a rubbish pile. And yet that's exactly the illustration that Paul gives there for the believer who winds up doing the right thing in the wrong way. It is imperative that we understand the protocol plan of God. It's imperative that we realize that a right thing must be done in a right way or we are doing right things in wrong ways. And a right thing in a wrong way does not glorify God. So please think about this. Keep listening to the flat line. And remember, I'm not a pastor. I'm just a window. I'm a voice. I'm an opportunity. If you really are hungry, if you really want to learn, if there's more that you want to get in your life, there are men out there that are phenomenal pastors that know much more than me that can teach you the word of God and you can tap into their resources free of charge. They don't charge for anything. And just like you listen to me, you can listen to them on tape or look at them on DVD. They will supply you the material free. But as you begin to grow, you will find that you need to take it in on a daily basis, not once a week like this radio show, but every day or at least three or four or five times a week as you grow and study and learn, and it becomes the most important thing in your life. Do you remember what I started on the show about four weeks ago? I started a study on your toe, T-O-E, and I said that's your time on earth. We did three weeks, three Sundays on that, and then we interrupted, and Easter Sunday we talked about the six trials of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how illegal they were and what he went through. And today I want to pick back up with the study on your toe. You may wonder what toe is, but it stands for your time on earth. And uh, when we last were with you studying this, we were talking about light. And we were talking about how believers are the light of the world. And we are going through this doctrine of light and seeing how you have the truth in your soul and that truth is the light. And we saw how evil hates light because it exposes the deeds of evil. And I want to go today and press on in this a little bit further. And I want you to see where the Bible tells us to put on the armor of light. And then I want to discuss what that is. In Romans thirteen twelve, Paul wrote these words. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us, therefore, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Now, in Ephesians 6, he talks about the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. We know what that is. That's a Roman military analogy to the Christian life. He uses different pieces of of the Roman armament to describe different phases in the Christian life. And what exactly is this 
armor of light he's talking about here. Well, if you read on two verses, you will see. He goes on and says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Let's stop right there. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh. All right, let's start with the flesh. Everybody listening to me has a flesh. That's another word for your old sin nature. And this verse says, make no provision for the lust of the flesh. Everybody has a lust pattern. And this is where you may get stumped. All lust patterns are not the same. Judas, one of the disciples of the Lord, had a lust for money and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Other people have other lust patterns. Some lust for money. Some lust for sex. Some lust for drugs. Some lust for attention. Some lust for power. It's a political season in America, and you'll see power lust demonstrated quite often as different candidates pony up and try to say why they should be the president of the United States. Just as long as you remember what the Bible says, cursed is the man that trusteth in man. And no man can solve the problems that we face in America today. I don't care who's elected. The only way our problems are going to be solved is you and me. Remember what the Bible said again. If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayer and heal their land. You and I are the answer to what's going on in America As goes our spiritual life, so goes the destiny of our nation. And to the extent that we play games with God, we're going to get batted around like we have been for the last 20 years. Sooner or later, you're going to have to take your spiritual life seriously and realize that it's not who you elect, it's who you are. That's what changes this country. So when Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust, Most people just think in terms of sex lust. That's what they think about. That's what you hear about on TV. Some preacher fornicated with some woman. Some coach fornicated with some woman. Some politician fornicated with some woman or vice versa. Well, there are other lust patterns. Stealing money. Jockeying for power. Jockeying for attention. Approbation lust is just the same. Lusting for attention, that's why some people dress like they dress and do what they do. They have to be the center of attention. That's approbation lust. So whatever the lust pattern is in your life, it will come screaming to the surface as soon as you allow it. That means if you quench the Holy Spirit and grieve the Spirit by personal sin, then you're letting your sin nature out of the box, and when you let your sin nature out of the box, your lust pattern's coming out with it, and you're going to follow the direction of your lust pattern. Now, if you want to put on Christ, what are the mechanics? What are the mechanics for putting on Christ? And very simply, it is occupation with Christ. First Peter chapter one, verse eight is very clear about occupation with Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, and yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, do you love Christ? Do you live for Christ? I mean, the Bible says that every church age believer has a destiny 
both in time and in eternity. And we are to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the minute you believed in Christ, your voyage began, and that destiny was going to carry you all the way through to eternity. It's headed all that way. And that's called your personal sense of destiny. We studied that last time on this show. And as you have that personal sense of destiny, what is it that motivates you to be faithful? What is it that motivates you to be faithful in, you might say, going to church and and studying your Bible and giving your money, if that's what you want to say? I want to put it this way. What is it that makes you be faithful in growing in the grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Not just a ritual with no reality to it. What is it? It is 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ keeps on motivating us. If you love him, you will obey him, the Bible says in 1 John 5.3. So when you put on Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you are assuming the mind of Christ. The New Testament in 1 Corinthians 2.13 is called the mind of Christ. And you are mandated in Philippians 2, 5 to put in the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Well, one of the key elements of that was what he thought. The Bible said he operated in humility, not arrogance, humility. Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not wrong to be equal with God, but humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. Putting on Christ involves humility. And in Romans twelve three, the Bible says, stop thinking of yourself in terms of arrogance, but think in terms of humility, as God has assigned to each one of us a standard of thinking from his word. Thinking in terms of humility doesn't mean wimpish thinking. It doesn't mean that you're a wimp, that you're a pushover, that people can run over you. That is not what it means. Thinking in terms of humility means orienting to authority, orientation to authority. That means that you recognize that authority is over you and you can respond or you can react. It's up to you. But you cannot replicate the life of Christ by reacting to authority. You have to respond. And so putting on Christ eliminates human viewpoint thinking in this life. It eliminates you trying to get even. It eliminates you trying to worm your way out of something. If someone pulls you over for speeding and gives you a ticket, uh, it's not fun. It's going to cost a few hundred bucks. But you say, thank you, sir. I was speeding. I deserved it. But not you. No, no, not you. You drive off thinking that dirty, you know, and you think you call him every name in the book. You are so mad that he caught you speeding. You reacted to authority. You didn't respond to authority. Even though authority may not be fair, you still have to learn to respond to authority. Authority is not perfect. Authority is not God. I mean, people that have authority over you have sin natures, and they will make mistakes. And if they make mistakes, do you forgive them, or do you get bitter and hold a grudge? See, that's not the mind of Christ. 
This is exactly what Jesus told Pilate. Pilate said, don't you know I have the authority to crucify you or let you go? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority at all if it wasn't for my Father in heaven. And Pilate said, oh, okay. And remember what Pilate said? I find no fault with this man. I see no reason to kill him. We discussed that last week. So the key for you to have a wonderful life, the key for you to be the person God intended for you to be, is to quit living for yourself and to live for Jesus Christ. Paul understood that in Philippians 1.21 when he said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. These lessons that I'm teaching you on the life of Christ, his, his toe that we've talked about, how he lived, how he walked in this world, They were demonstrated to cause us to think like he thought, to live like he lived, to reflect his glory, his light, as it was manifested in our souls. Because the light that he produced was the truth that he presented. And it was by truth that men were set free. Because they responded to that message. He said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If we're going to put on Christ, this is important. We must be dedicated to his interest. This is not about us. It's about him. If you're going to put on Christ, you must be dedicated to his interests. Listen carefully. Colossians 3.17, and do all that you do in word or in deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, that's pretty, pretty straight. Your job, your family, your hobby, all that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a fair question to ask yourself. This is going to be a tough question. But are you fit for the master's use? Are you fit for the master's use? Let me give you some principles on this. Number one, just because you're saved and a member of God's royal family doesn't mean he can use you to attend to trusted matters. It doesn't. Two. There is accountability in heaven. Second Timothy 2.19 The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. All right, let's, let's take a look at this. Depart from iniquity. Depart is an aorist active imperative in the morphology of that verb, ophistomy. It means to move away from. To leave, and this is not a request. The imperative mood of this verb is a mandate. Depart from iniquity. The word for iniquity is adakia, and that word is wrongdoing. Wrongdoing. You know, in First John one nine, the Bible says, "If we confess our sin." He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to purify us from all of our wrongdoing. Wrongdoing is evil. Wrongdoing is a right thing done in a wrong way. This is what Satan's good at. He's good at perpetuating this concept of wrongdoing. And so Christians get into it very easy. They think they're doing the right thing, but they do it in the wrong way. I mean, going to church, is that right? Oh, yes. Is there a right way and a wrong way to go? Oh, yes. So if you're in church singing, oh, how I love Jesus, 
and yet there's unconfessed sin in your life, you're doing wrong. You're in the right place in the wrong way because you've quenched and grieved the Holy Spirit, and you are there in the energy of the flesh, and you think when you get to heaven that you're going to be rewarded because you went to church and because you tithed and because you read your Sunday school lesson, and you did all of those right things, but you did them in the wrong way. You did them in the energy of the flesh, not under the filling of the Spirit, because you never dealt with your sin. Mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, even physical overt sins. You didn't confess them to God. You didn't name them to God, as First John 1, 9 said. So you got out of fellowship, you stayed out of fellowship, but you played the game. Everybody thought you were a great Christian, because on the outside, you looked really great. But you know, God doesn't look at the outside. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. And when God wants to check you out, he's not looking at your image and your style. He's not looking at your attendance record. He's not looking at your contributions. He's looking at what you think. You can't fool him. As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. Paul used the failure of two men to illustrate this point. The failure of a man named Hymenaeus and Philetus who began to teach that there was no such thing as a resurrection. Listen to what Paul talks about here. 2 Timothy 2.20, In a great house are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some vessels for honor and some of dishonor. These are all in the master's house. Get that now. But there's a distinction in the material. Some of those vessels are high quality and some are low quality. In other words, you know, the Tupperware dish you feed the dog out of, and then the good dish that your wife gets out when the company comes over, the crystal, you know, and all that stuff. Verse 21, 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, if anyone cleanse himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, and useful for the master prepared for every good work. And we start off with the word if, a conjunction referring to a condition, which experience must determine. It's a possibility. If. If what? If anyone. Greek word tis, referring to a certain person. What person? The one who's the vessel of dishonor. If the vessel of dishonor will purge himself. And this word purge is ekkathiro. And it's a subjunctive mood verb. means maybe you will, maybe you won't. But it means to correct the false doctrine. Correct the false doctrine. Rebound your sin. Get it straight. You know, it it always amazes me why people follow false teachers. I mean, they get infatuated with them. They they, they develop friendships with them. And this infatuation and friendship blinds them, and, and they don't see what's going on. They become a confidant to the preacher or the evangelist that's teaching wrong doctrine. Purge yourself from these things. Tuton, Greek word. And it means the things which are causing dishonor. What are they? Well, depart from iniquity, apistomy. Withdraw from, remove from, get away from, along with the noun adikia, the injustice and unrighteousness. The reason that a vessel is rejected for use, the reason it's not a vessel of honor in the master's house, is simply wrongdoing, or shall we say, misrepresenting the Father's Word. If you just back up a little bit in this passage, 
you will see where verse 15 says rightly dividing the word of truth. Orthotomeo is the word rightly dividing. It's like an orthodontist straightening out your teeth to make straight. Now, look at verse 18 in this passage. Who have strayed concerning the truth. Now, these two guys have gone crooked. They're not going straight. And they say the resurrection has already passed. It had not passed. It had not occurred. It has not occurred yet. We're still waiting on the shouted order for Jesus Christ to return. This warning is in reference to the false doctrine which was being taught by these men. It was a misrepresentation of God and a compromise of God's righteousness, and these two men are named the two men who taught the erroneous concept. And this this concept, this false doctrine, had spread like an unstoppable cancer. And it had discouraged many believers and discredited the ministry of Paul. And their actions, the actions of these two men, had earned them a place in God's hall of shame where a written record of their failure exists forever. Here's a principle I want you to remember. Staying associated with anyone who teaches false doctrine is you asking to receive cursing by association. If you want to be a vessel of honor, fit for the master's use, then learn the word of God and make consistent application into your life. You know, this is the age of the Internet. This is the age of instant communication, and a lot of people send out blogs and emails that try to lure you away from sound biblical teaching. Many a good person has thought that uh, God has commissioned them to speak for him, and so they send out their blogs every day. This is what God is telling me, and I think you need to hear it. In other words, that's what they're saying. My question is, why do they feel the need to share with the world what they're learning in private? I mean... Why do they do that? Why do you read that stuff? Just going to create more questions. If there's a well-qualified pastor teaching the word of God, then get under him and listen to him. But don't get locked into some guy that doesn't have the gift and doesn't have the education and really doesn't know what he's talking about sometimes. It's amazing how confused people are always trying to hustle up an audience for their trappings. Stay away from it. They don't have the gift. They don't have the authority to leave them alone. So Paul says, if anyone cleanses himself from the false doctrines, then he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.21. Now, you want to be a vessel of honor? You want to be a vessel of dishonor? It all depends on what you believe, what you do. How you execute the Christian life. Can God trust you to get it right? Can God trust you with his word? Are you going to tell somebody something that's not even close to the truth? Let me ask you one question before I leave today. Tell me how to live the Christian life. That's it. Tell me how to live the Christian life. If I sat down with you, what would you tell me? How do I live the Christian life? Next week, I'll answer it, and we'll see if you got it right. Until then, this is Rick Hughes saying thank you for listening to The Flatline. Thank you for listening to The Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, 
please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054. Or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.